Hello and welcome back to the Archives Art Incomplete, episode number 47, season 3, episode 3. Today we're going to be talking about the Captive Temple and the Day of Reckoning, both from the Jedi Apprentice series, both by Jude Watson. As always, we're going to start with the back of the book. The Jedi Temple is under attack. An attempt has been made to kill Yoda. A dangerous intruder has infiltrated the Jedi. Everybody is under suspicion, and no one is safe from harm. Obi-Wan Kenobi and Qui-Gon Jinn must get to the heart of the conspiracy, or watch the temple be destroyed from the inside. It's not unreasonable. Conspiracy feels like it stretches the truth a little bit, and everybody under suspicion also stretches the truth a little bit, like Yoda, Mace Windu, not really under suspicion, uh, as well as like Tall and Bant and Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and like most of the characters we talked to actually not under suspicion uh it's really just like one enemy agent not a conspiracy anyways what we're gonna do is we're gonna do something a little different here we're gonna also read the back of the book of the day of reckoning because we're gonna talk about it eventually and i want to we're trying something new we're gonna see how it goes so the day of reckoning Qui-Gon Jinn's evil former apprentice, Xanatos, has set a trap for his old master. He has lured Qui-Gon and young Obi-Wan Kenobi to his home planet of Talos, and has framed them for a crime they did not commit. The penalty is death. Suddenly, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are fugitives on a planet where everyone is an enemy. Xanatos' day of reckoning has come. It's not so much a trap as a contingency plan. They chased him. The crime is unknown, which is kind of weird. It's also strange that it plays up the dire straits that Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are in. Um, except that, like, a bunch of the people they meet are actually helpful. So, you know, not enemies. Uh, and then it twists to Xanatos' Day of Reckoning has come. Like, that kind of twists the whole thing. We're like, it's dangerous for Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. Xanatos is doomed. Like, why? Mm, I don't really like that. Um, I mean, I get that. We'll get to it. Anyway, so should you read this? The two felt significantly less impactful than the two Melida Dawn books from last week. Uh, there's a lot of focus on reforging the bonds between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, but these kind of feel like filler, despite putting a capstone on the Xanatos storyline. So, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the plot, as always. We're going to talk about the growth that we see in Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, the reforging of the relationship, uh, the way the Jedi order acts in these ways and a couple miscellaneous bits and bobs along the way so let's begin with the plot of the captive temple we begin with the return to coruscant immediately after melida dawn where the infiltrator or thief in the previous book has presumably set a trap for yoda and attempted assassination obi-wan is allowed to reside at the temple after a convalescence of the council uh but no judgment has been passed as to whether or not he'll be allowed to be a Jedi again or to be an apprentice to Qui-Gon. Qui-Gon is tasked with solving the problem of the infiltrator thief, and Obi-Wan is told in no uncertain terms, keep your nose out of it. From there, we have a reunion of Obi-Wan and Bant, his Mon Calmari friend, last seen in The Rising Force. I guess we got a little bit of her in The Uncertain Path. Uh, but she wasn't a powerful character there, and we didn't really have that connection that she has with Obi-Wan. There is a very powerful scene where Obi-Wan realizes he can't really tell her what happened on Melida Dawn. Someone he loved died in front of him. Qui-Gon left children to die. Obi-Wan is traumatized, and he's like, I'm 13, I'm not ready to dump that on my 11-year-old friend. I don't know how to talk about these sorts of things. Uh, however, as they are talking, a horizontal turbo lift tube breaks, so essentially a horizontal elevator, uh, with the car barely staying in the tube hundreds of meters above the ground. Bant goes for a communicator call for help. Obi-Wan, after a minute of 
waiting and no help arriving, goes to the car by climbing a bunch of stairs and begins to ferry children out of the tube. It's a bunch of kids, like four years and younger, and one teacher who did not have a lightsaber to be able to cut them out of the car. So Obi-Wan is able to cut them out and begins to ferry them away. Qui-Gon arrives as Obi-Wan is saving the first, and together they manage to save everyone. The Jedi Council is below, using the Force to ensure that the lift car stays in place. And the Council then tells Bant, good job calling us. Ali Alon, the Jedi who is in there, good job keeping the children safe. Children, you were so very brave. Obi-Wan, you did a good job, but you really should have waited. You shouldn't have gone in alone. You're reckless and impulsive and a danger to everyone around you. Apparently, Jedi philosophy is wait until kids start dying and then see if they ask for help. And if they ask for help while they're dying, then you can offer it. I really don't know what the Jedi Council is thinking here. Uh, Obi-Wan then heads to the head of maintenance to request a new comm link so he can call for help in situations like this. Uh, his was either destroyed or lost on Melida Dawn, and he had just hasn't had a replacement, which is... And I think Bant didn't have hers with hers, or hers had broken, and so she had to go to a communication station, and that was damaged. Uh, it's a whole reason for why they didn't just get on their comm links and call from help from where they were. Um, anyways... Qui-Gon is already down in maintenance, talking with the person in charge of maintenance, getting information on cascading system failures. Temperature controls, wacky, uh, the turbo lift was sabotaged, that sort of thing, and it's linked to the infiltrator. Qui-Gon also assumes that Obi-Wan is just lurking, just like kind of hanging out by him, hoping to get in on the investigation. It's like, alright, come along. Obi-Wan was just there for a calm link in case he got into trouble and could call for help. But he's like, right, if you want my help, I'm in. I wasn't aiming for that, but job done. In. Uh, Qui-Gon suspects Xanatos from the cascading system errors because the head of technology there is like, yeah, I don't see who could do this. I'm one of the best in the galaxy. And Qui-Gon's like, well, only somebody else who's very technologically oriented and a Jedi would be able to out do you, and I can think of one person, his name is Xanatos. Uh, plus, he has the hatred of Jedi, the personal attacks on Yoda, that sort of thing. Um, he also calls similar tactics of disruption plus demoralization plus distraction equals devastation. Uh, it was a strategy of a tyrant that he overthrew back when he had Xanatos as a Padawan. And he's, ah, clearly this follows the pattern of this tyrant that I fought a decade ago. The the pattern is like, you know, deny resources, minimize their moral standing, and then strike where they aren't prepared for you to strike. That's not really a groundbreaking strategy. So I don't, that's not really a great causal link. That's a little bit of a leap of faith. But the technological skills and the hatred of Jedi is a much stronger link. However, uh, a Padawan named Siri, who I'm presuming is Siri Tachi, who is mentioned in some of the Clone Wars books as a friend of Obi-Wan's, uh, passes along some information. Brook Chun, the known accomplice slash maybe apprentice of the rogue agent in the temple, uh, Brook was bragging about his dad, who is from Talos, the same planet that Xanatos is from. So this pretty much confirms it in the eyes of Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, and Tal. And then... 
Bant shows up and is like, hey, I figured out how Xanatos and Brock might have been moving. They might be moving through the water pipes, through the tubes, because they're large enough to swim in. I go through them all the time, but nobody else really uses them because there aren't a whole lot of amphibian people. And hey, wasn't some athletic gear, including breathing apparatus, taken? That's weird. Uh, so the three of them, uh, Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon, and Bant, go to confront and explore. Tall is assisting, but since she's blind, she's mostly bent on research. They find the hiding spot and a land speeder and Xanatos. They fight, but Xanatos is able to escape. In the fight, uh, Xanatos taunts them with very specific information. He knew that they were coming and knew that Qui-Gon's source was Bant. He alludes to the fact that he's like, ah, children are solving puzzles for you. I thought you would have found me long ago. Uh, through some investigation, they've determined that the leak is 2J, uh, a protocol droid assigned to Tall as a assistant to just be like, hey, your food's on your table. You should go reach for it as just like, a visual assistant of sorts. Um, if he's not compromised, he at the very least has a bug planted on him. They send him out of the room to cobble together a plan to feed false information to Xanatos using another pair of Jedi that look like Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon and a pre-recorded conversation. As Obi-Wan is going to get the apprentice lookalike for him, Bant is like, hey, do you, is there anything that I can do to help? Uh, Obi-Wan's feeling a bit of jealousy at this point because Qui-Gon has lavished with her, her with praise over her ability to figure out how Xanatos might be moving throughout the temple, and his own insecurities make him lash out at Bant and just like, no, you can't help. Garn, come over here. We're leaving. We're doing this. You can't help, Bant. Go away. Uh, and so there's that seed of jealousy and distrust between the two of them. But before they're able to put the plan of feeding false information to Xanatos into action, Xanatos contacts Qui-Gon and his comlink and is like, Hey, I have your fishy little friend. I've taken myself a hostage. They put the plan into action anyways. It's a good plan. Uh, and there's no need to undo a good plan if it still meets your mission objectives. Uh, the plan is essentially saying, we're going to need to do a full system reboot, including security. Security is going to be down for 12 minutes. This is relevant because one of Xanatos' objectives, in addition to trying to kill or demoralize Yoda and the Jedi, is take on a theft. There's a store of vertex cubes or something. Um, it's a form of currency other than credits that the Jedi holding for a pair of planetary systems that are in the middle of a dispute and they want a neutral third party and they don't trust the Senate or any of the banks on Coruscant. They just trust the Jedi. And so there's a huge sum of money in the Jedi vaults and disabling security means Xanatos is going to be able to get in. He's going to be able to get that money and he's going to be able to use that money to help the floundering off-world corporation. Now, uh, the trap works and Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are able to confront Xanatos and Brooke at the vault. Uh, Xanatos is like, ah, oh, well, crap, Bruck, go kill Bant. Uh, and Obi-Wan chases after Bruck, who's instructed to, you know, kill his friend. Obi-Wan defeats Bruck, who, in the final moments of their fight, falls off of a waterfall and breaks his neck on the rocks below. Obi-Wan does attempt to catch him, but fails. There's a moment of both metaphorical and a literal fall. Obi-Wan gives into his anger for a moment early in the fight and stumbles in haste in his aggression. But he's able to recenter himself, refocus on his core of identity and what he wants to be doing, put up a defense. At, but I really, the parallel is simple, just 
He got angry, he fell to the dark side, he fell in real life. But I, I like small things like that. It's just cute. Um... Of course, seeing a classmate and former rival die by his own actions or inability to save him will give Obi-Wan even more trauma. Uh, Obi-Wan then goes on to save Bant, diving into the pool where she's being kept. While she's a Mon Cal and can breathe underwater for a very long period of time, it is not, in fact, infinite. Uh, and so Mon Cal, a fish person, was about to be drowned. Um... Back in the vault, Qui-Gon fights Xanatos, who, on the back foot, taunts him with a bomb threat, uh, reactivating the systems, which has begun to slowly occur, will destroy the temple. Qui-Gon is forced to choose between pursuing Xanatos and probably finishing him off, or letting him go and going back to the temple to make sure that the threat isn't carried through. Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are able to race through the temple and find the fire crystals that were stolen in the uncertain path by the fusion reactor. Uh, the fire crystals essentially serve as energy multipliers, and if the reactor had started up again, the temple would have been destroyed. Obi-Wan is allowed back to the Jedi Order, but on probation, uh, on his own request, and Qui-Gon accepts him as his Padawan again-ish. The Council recommends that Qui-Gon doesn't chase after Xanatos, but doesn't prohibit it. And there, the book ends. Continuing right from there, we dive into the Day of Reckoning. Qui-Gon is chasing after Xanatos despite the Council's suggestions, and is taking Obi-Wan with him. They haven't had time to talk about their temporary breakup on Melodadon, and they apparently don't discuss it on the flight to Talos at all. They arrive on planet and decide to skip the security line, which causes the local police to chase after them because they made a scene of themselves. They make their way into a catharsis arena. This is catharsis spelled K-A-T-H-A-R-S-I-S. -S. Uh, Catharsis is a series of games, including sparring, swoop races, shock ball, etc., that have a high rate of injury and mortality. The people gamble on the games, uh, and in the fifth and final round, three civilians are selected to be able to gamble on that final round, and the winner earns enough to be set for life. Uh, the government runs this, sponsors this, and the proceeds go to the nominal preservation and restoration of the natural sacred spaces of the planet. This gambling system essentially serves as both circuses for the masses as well as the taxation system. Taxes have been eliminated, people only pay what they want by gambling recklessly, but there's a lot of encouragement into that gambling. Finally, one more important note about this is Vox Chun, the father of Brock Chun, is the treasurer of Talos and a right-hand lackey of Xanatos. Um, they're rescued by a local named Denetris, or Den. He goes by Den for the rest of the book, so I don't know why he's called Denetris in one place. Anyways, they flee the arena to find out that they are wanted for some unspecified crime and a reward has been posted. Uh, this is because Xanatos isn't hiding. He's the quote-unquote benevolent ruler of Talos, and the people love him because he's honest about what he's doing. Den takes them to a safe house. It's essentially his apartment. Uh, but they're surrounded by the police and have to continue to flee. So they go through, like, the sewers, and the police find them there, and they continue to flee, and he eventually brings them to an ally secret base, Andra. Andra leads the Power Party, a political party that's been outlawed by the government because they question why the planet's natural reserves have been turned over to a private corporation and nobody is allowed to oversee their restoration efforts, among other concerning elements. The first plan that the four of them develop, Andra, Den, Qui-Gon, and Obi-Wan, has uh, 
the three guys break into Unify, Den being a thief and Andrew being a political activist. Andrew doesn't want to get out there. Uh, Den is like, this is literally my day job, so come on, Jedi, let's go. Uh, Unify is an organization that has ties to Offworld Corporation, headed by Xanatos. Unify also uh, has ties to both Catharsis and the Restoration Projects. They are, in fact, in charge of the Restoration Projects on Talos. They're scanning for information when a silent alarm is triggered, then abandons Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon, who are thrown in jail, sentenced to be executed. In the cages in the Catharsis Arena, waiting their execution, they are saved by Andrew and Den. It's kind of weird to me that Xanatos wants to go through the show of a trial and an execution rather than just, like, shooting them in jail where they are, but the emotional damage is important. He wants Qui-Gon to suffer and his reputation to be ruined and the Jedi as a whole to be questioned, and he wants to maintain his facade of being a benevolent benevolent and honest ruler and so being like these people have been destabilizing galactic governments they are a threat to you is a good way for him to look better and for the jedi to look worse and so he wants to go through with it uh however they're saved and back in andra's hideout they make a plan den knows that the catharsis games are rigged he got the final piece of information he needed uh, in the unify headquarters uh so Andrew and Obi-Wan will go to the sacred pools, gather evidence that Unify and the government are damaging the natural preserves, and then will rig the Catharsis game so that he wins, and then when he wins, they'll show the footage of the pools. Uh, Andrew and Obi-Wan do go to the sacred pools, almost get caught, but are able to steal a speeder and get back, getting evidence of Offworld Corporation's involvement, Unify's destructive work, that sort of thing. They get it to Qui-Gon, who gets it to the lone broadcast producer. Now, this is a huge tangent, has nothing to do with Star Wars. I've worked with the broadcast teams for card game tournaments. These have as few as three static cameras, sometimes even just, like, one pointed at the face of each player and then one pointed at the cards. None of these objects are moving out of frame. The cameras don't need to move, the objects in them don't need to move, you don't need to fo change focus. It all is very static. The overlay doesn't need to change dramatically because all three cameras can be on screen at the same time. And these productions have five to ten people working on the broadcast. It's ludicrous and hilarious to me, now that I have just a tiny bit of knowledge, that the broadcast for the entire planet's primary form of taxation and income is handled by a single guy in a booth with greasy fingers like sure the greasy fingers part is accurate and probably has some droids helping him but oh boy just a little bit of knowledge makes you go that's just wildly wrong and that's one of my favorite things about knowing little things about everything anyways they roll the clip and xanatos scoffs he's like this is doctored footage by criminals who want to discredit my great works and the great works of you the people and the people are like oh yeah that makes sense and then Den, who managed to win the games, is like, I'm going to have the governor read a statement that I handed him before the games began. Uh, and the statement reads, the games are rigged, this is how it will end, I will win. Uh, and people are like, oh, well now we have questions, Xanatos, how does he know that? Why Xanatos doesn't just say, well clearly he rigged the game and is trying to overthrow me, your benevolent ruler. Uh, and instead says, oh, the jig is up, I'm out of here don't get it. Anyways, Xanatos flees. He heads to the sacred pools where he nominally has a way to get off planet uh, because there are landing pads there. 
He locks down the main entrance, but Obi-Wan, of course, knows the crevasse that led to the caves that he took with Andra, and so he and Qui-Gon are able to sneak in. The two enter and duel Xanatos, and Qui-Gon is ready to disarm him and take him in for trial and uh, sentencing at that point. However, Xanatos is like, you you don't get to decide my fate, I get to decide my fate, and steps into one of the sacred pools. The sacred pools, of course, once were great mineral baths, very healthy and invigorating. Now they are so chemically corrupted that uh, when Obi-Wan stuck a stick into it for like a second, the stick just disintegrated. Um, Xanatos steps into it, sinks into the water, uh, and his cloak bubbles up to the surface and disintegrates. This book ends with Qui-Gon accepting Obi-Wan as Padawan again and looking forward to the challenges he brings. Now, obviously, we're meant to think Xanatos is dead. We saw him step into a pool of acidic toxins and his cape disappeared and there's no body. And I'm 99% sure that he's alive. Like, he's just 100% alive. It's not even 99. If Xanatos is dead, I will be surprised. I'll just be shocked. Like, come on. Darth Maul got, this is spoilers for some stuff. Anyways, Darth Maul got cut in half and fell down a huge shaft. Like, literally bisected. Does not have legs. Somehow Darth Maul survived. So, like, if we don't see the body, they're alive. Anyways, let's get to that analysis. Uh, the Jedi, the Jedi Council seems to really have a policy of inaction, even at the cost of children's lives. Qui-Gon withdrew from Melita Dawn, and the Council frowned upon Obi-Wan taking action on the turbo lift, just presuming that he acted recklessly. They also treat Obi-Wan strangely. Uh, Mace Windu says something along the lines of, You're 13, you're not a child, stop acting like one. Now, go to your room, eat your veggies. Like... They also withhold affection as punishment for his actions. With the Turbolift incident, they praise Bant and Ali Alon and the children and specifically say, You did okay, Obi-Wan. Here's all the things you did wrong. Um, also, as an aside, we get to see some of Mace's sharpness and like perception, wisdom, and understanding of people that we got in Shatterpoint. He's able to, quote, see into the very heart of you. Um, figure out secrets you don't even know. And I think that it's really cool that we get to see, like, Mace is a very consistent character, and he's one of the few characters that I am consistently able to hear the voice of his actor in. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson, of course, did an incredible job as Mace Windu, and his cadence is just perfectly stern throughout. Anyways, uh, the temple is apparently also just generally closed to outsiders. During the captive temple, it's closed even to Jedi and their retinal scans and all sorts of security measures. But even when it's operating as normal, uh, people, civilians aren't allowed entry. Uh, the Jedi pose themselves as servants of the people, but really they're only accessible by the Senate and leaders of planets, not the people. And this is just particularly interesting to me because of the comparison to the Aes Sedai in The Wheel of Time, which I've also been reading, wherein the Aes Sedai, they open up their headquarters to the public, including the leader of their organization, for extreme cases where somebody really needs that sort of guidance. Jedi don't need to talk to the common folk, apparently. They just know better. It actually feels like one of the recurring themes that I first 
pulled from the old republic annihilation the unintentional but unmistakable self-righteous superiority of the jedi they're like we know what's best these children should die we know it's best you shouldn't come to us for advice like it's just oh so frustrating i don't like jedi anyways that's enough about jedi as a whole let's talk about individuals we're gonna start with obi-wan kenobi there's a lot of push from the council and from Obi-Wan himself, and a little bit from Qui-Gon, and even from Bant, that his decision to stay on Melida Dawn was a mistake. Notably, this mistake had the disastrous consequences of saving the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, of children and elders, and bringing peace to a planet that's been racked with generational war for literal centuries. So, yeah, shame on you, Obi-Wan, for saving lives and bringing peace to the galaxy. Shame on you. Now, his defection from the Jedi reflects poorly on the other apprentices, as mentioned by Siri. It throws their vows into doubt, and it throws the Jedi Order in general to doubt. Because the this is this is interesting, and I'm going to compare it to the Wheel of Time again. The Jedi don't really have any overseeing body, and so it's their promise and execution of that promise of non-interference except when explicitly asked for that allows people to be comfortable with it and by breaking his vow and interfering with the politics of an individual planet obi-wan signals to the galaxy at large jedi are not to be trusted they'll do what they want they're coming for your planet the way this is handled in the wheel of time the Aes Sedai take three oaths they are essentially magically bound to do no harm, uh, something, 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 and never tell a lie. I can't remember what the third oath is. I think it's like, I don't know, try and do good for the Aes Sedai, fight the Dark One wherever you... And, but the it's don't hurt people unless your life is directly at risk, and don't tell a lie. And they are magically compelled to do these things. It is known that an Aes Sedai will not lie. Um and cannot lie and so that it's just an interesting parallel here where jedi can lie and frequently do and use mind tricks and do all sorts of ethically questionable things if we're putting it politely um but like if the jedi get a reputation of willing to sacrifice their reputation to save kids that's like kind of a good reputation to have anyways Obi-Wan, of course, has a lot of negative feelings wrapped up in his actions over Melida Dawn. He has anger and frustration, particularly when he's pressed about his decision, and he feels that he's shown the appropriate regret and should be accepted back into the Jedi Order. Of course, he's kind of forgetting the aphorism, or he is not aware of the idea that it takes ten truths to repair one lie. He said that, I'm leaving the Jedi Order, and people are like, okay, you're trustworthy has been broken the trust here this bond has been broken and when he came back he's like okay i'm back i'm committed i'm 100 they're like you've said that before and went back on your word you're going to have to prove it more than you did before before we took you at your word now you've proven your word isn't worth that much and so you're going to have to work for it and obi-wan hasn't really learned that if you break your word you really have to prove yourself to fix things uh He's also just still dealing with the emotional consequences of Melida Dawn. He was in a full-blown civil war and saw a friend die in front of him. He now understands the pain of attachment and the risks that come with caring. To paraphrase, I want to say, Craig Matson, 
uh, one of the creative leads on The Last of Us. It's easy to be brave or fearless when you have nothing to lose. Similarly, as a parallel, it's easy to preach non-attachment when you haven't lost anything. Obi-Wan also has a lot of doubt about his relationship with Qui-Gon. He wants to be accepted again, and he says he trusts Qui-Gon, but he clearly doesn't. He says he doesn't know what to expect, he doesn't know what Qui-Gon's going to do, he doesn't trust Qui-Gon to pick him, he doesn't trust Qui-Gon to do what the council is pointing him toward, like, he doesn't know what's coming from Qui-Gon. Uh, he sees Qui-Gon's support of Bant as the Jedi Master looking towards Bant as a potential replacement for Obi-Wan, even though Qui-Gon behaved the same way towards Tall, another Jedi Master. And so Obi-Wan is just doubting Qui-Gon left and right, despite saying out loud that he trusts him. What's good to see is that he, towards the end of the Catholic Temple, he actually has to attack his own beliefs. Uh, he deals with Bruck's frustration and anger at the Jedi, feelings that he has himself, and counters them. He's like, this is why you shouldn't be frustrated. This is why you shouldn't be angry. You're the only one holding yourself back. They're not actually holding you back. They're helping you. And having to argue against his own emotions gives him control over the end, gives him perspective. He also shows belief and confidence in himself towards the end of the book, guiding Qui-Gon through the temple to the maintenance center. Finally, he owns his grief and talks to Bant at the waterfall where Bruck died and overlooking where she almost died. So she is also reclaiming this spot for herself. Obi-Wan is reclaiming it from Bruck's death. And Obi-Wan lets the emotions flow through him and out of him rather than continuing to bottle them up. And he tells her about Melida Dawn and Sarasi and the love that he felt for her. Um, I actually, this is going to sound a little weird, but I really appreciate the deaths of both Brooke and Sarasi. They both carry a lot of weight and put a lot of pressure on Obi-Wan. And there aren't a ton of deaths so far that have been in the Star Wars books that have affected characters so heavily. I mean, there's Attain Term Mukan's death, but other than that, there haven't been a lot of casualties that have been emotionally resonant, and it's very cool to see that happening in uh, young adult books. Moving on to Qui-Gon, Qui-Gon demonstrates good feedback and mentorship and support, first with Tall. There's a moment where she's grappling with the idea that she's not really able to go out and do fieldwork because she's now blind, and he just slams home some good old Jedi wisdom. He acknowledges the pain and challenges that she's facing with empathy and compassion, and then tees her up for a challenge. He's like, I need somebody to do this. I don't have this skill set. You do. Here's something that I need from you. Let's, let's do this. Let's work on this. And just gives her a challenge that she will be able to accomplish, but will still challenge her and push her limits. Uh, he does it again shortly after Bant's captured by Xanatos. Obi-Wan is panicking because he brusquely dismissed her when she offered help because of his jealousy. She ran into the water tunnels where she was captured by Xanatos. She shouldn't have run off on her own. She knows this, etc., etc. Uh, and Qui-Gon takes the time during an ongoing hostage situation, mind you, to focus on what Obi-Wan's concerns are, address them logically, address them them emotionally and just say something along the lines of this is the time for you to prove you're a jedi you know you can do it i know you can do it it doesn't matter right now who caused the problem i know you feel like you did i don't think you did and we can talk about that later but right now let's go be jedi let's just be one with the force let the force flow through you and that's just very cool to see like i can see that 
working. Obi-Wan learns from this. Uh, by seeing how Qui-Gon dealt with Tall and using the same compassion, he uses that cha compassion challenge and support structure on Andra in The Day of Reckoning. Also, Obi-Wan uh, picks up some lessons from Xanatos, too, uh, one of which is always have multiple objectives. This is going back to the Sacred Pool. His plan to go back in gets them more chances at finding incriminating evidence while also giving them an escape route, which they didn't previously have, which gets them back to the arena in time to display the information, which leads to the overthrow of Xanatos, etc., etc. Now, both Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan also critique Qui-Gon's impulsiveness. We've been talking about how Obi-Wan is impulsive and reckless so much, but Qui-Gon brought Obi-Wan to Talos to hunt a rogue dark Jedi outside the sanctioning of the Jedi Order, when their bond is at its weakest. Furthermore, Obi-Wan finds that Qui-Gon quickly trusts many strangers and finds it frustrating that Qui-Gon doesn't trust Obi-Wan when he trusts a thief like Den. But Qui-Gon's like, that's, that's a superficial trust. It's very easy for me to trust Den because all I need to do is trust, like, I don't really have many options. I have no guides here. I need to get to safety. My options are trust Den or do my best on my own, and trusting Den doesn't seem like it'd be worse than my own instincts. Second of all, once we leave this planet, I'm not going to think about Den ever again. I don't even know his last name. I don't even remember his full first name. His name is just Den. We're not going to have a deep relationship. You, on the other hand, Obi-Wan Kenobi, my Padawan and apprentice, we're going to be together for another decade. We are going to have to fight together regularly. I have to trust you with my life, and I have the choice of that, and we previously had trust, and again, you broke that trust, and that's something that needs to be repaired. I trusted you initially, and that has been since broken, whereas Den, I trust initially, broken in some ways, but again, limitations, and there are people who vouch for you. Nobody's vouching for you, Obi-Wan, because you've broken trust with the Jedi Council, and with Bant, and everyone else, and so you're going to have to do a lot of work to rebuild that. Uh, but Obi-Wan's just like, you're you're trusting a thief, again. Um, Qui-Gon does show that he cares about Obi-Wan. When he's giving advice to Obi-Wan, he says, I know you know this. At some point, Obi-Wan's like, I'm going to go do this independent mission. And Qui-Gon's like, hey, don't forget to, like, buckle your seatbelt and make sure your wipers work. Just very basic stuff. And Obi-Wan's like, why are you telling me this? And Qui-Gon's like, I know you know this, but it's important to me that I tell you because it makes me feel better. That's honestly it. Like, I know you know this. It's not that I don't think you know, don't know how to do what you're doing. It's just, it makes me feel more secure reminding you of the things that you know how to do. Because I'd feel terrible if you forgot or something slipped up and I could have protected you. He doesn't say all of that, but that's the vibe he sends off. Um, another point when Obi-Wan's sending off to the mission, Obi-Wan's like, okay, I'll go get the job done. Qui-Gon's like, no, stay safe, then get the job done. Safe first, then job. Second priority, getting information. First job, not dying. Can you do that? And Obi-Wan's like, I'm gonna do the job, boss. And Qui-Gon's like, please don't be suicidal again. Please don't be so willing to sacrifice your life. It's very honorable and courageous of you, but that's not a good thing for me. Um, now, this isn't so much about either of them, but the ideas that they're fighting over. Qui-Gon sees Obi-Wan's pain from Brooke's death as a strength, while Xanatos sees it as a weakness and tries to push Obi-Wan into anger and rage, building off of that grief. Of course, Obi-Wan prevails, and they're able to defeat Xanatos, but Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan also have the opportunity to finally have an honest confrontation of their emotions together, both confronting each other with their 
with the other person's emotions, but also confronting their own emotions themselves for the first time in full. Um, asking if Brock will haunt Obi-Wan, asking if Xantos will haunt Qui-Gon, and the answer for both and from both is, I feel sorrow and grief, and I carry it in my heart, but it was not my choice, it is not what I wanted, it is not what I tried to do, it is something that happened outside of my control, and I can be sad that a life was lost, but be accepting of the events that happened. And as a result of this, they have their reconciliation, and Qui-Gon admits that he knows that Obi-Wan will challenge him again as his Padawan, and Obi-Wan's like, oh, I promise never to challenge you again. And Qui-Gon's like, first of all, kid, please do. I This isn't like a, don't challenge me again. I know you're going to challenge me again. But also, it's good for me. I like that. I like that challenge. It makes me grow. It makes you grow. I, again, not all of this is said, but that whole vibe of, let's go, let's like test each other, push our boundaries, and grow together. And I really like that. Finally, one of the last things I want to talk about very briefly is Andra and Den. We get a fair amount of byplay between these two side characters in the Day of Reckoning. I unfortunately don't think we're going to get a whole lot more of them in the rest of the series because we've left this planet. Uh, but I, I like them both. Andra is a staunch activist and an idealist and anti-corporatist, whereas Den is on team make do with what we got. He's a thief and he's ready to do whatever it takes to uh, make money and get by in this world. Um... Of course, Andrew is also willing to do anything to get what she wants, which is preservation of the planet's natural resources and freedom of the uh, planet from authoritarian government, that sort of thing. But the banter between the two of them, their insults and their banter have a sense of knowing and respecting each other's strength and identity as persons. They're not cruel lines. They're just like, hmm, you're a little bit of a trickster, aren't you? Like, it's just very respectful. At the end of the book, when Den is like, okay, so what do I do now, though? Because I gave back the money that I won, gave it to the government, etc., etc. What do I do? It comes up again. Well, you could always be a politician because you're a lion freedom fighter. And that's, that's like, it has happened. If I had a nickel for every time that happened to Jedi Apprentice, well, currently I'd have two nickels and we're like a third of the way through the series. So by the end of this, who knows how many thief-slash-liars-slash-freedom-fighters become politicians who end up ruling their planets. Anyways, let's go into a couple bits of miscellaneous detail. Lightsabers, short out underwater, we're told about this in the Captive Temple. This is not the case for a specific Jedi who designed their lightsabers with this in mind, like Kit Fisto the Tolan, who fights underwater a couple times, but most lightsabers apparently short out. Xanatos is able to conceal his dark presence within the temple. This is something that two other... Dark Jedi, I'm aware of, were able to do. One, Darth Zana, and the other, uh, Darth Sidious. They were both able to do this, which puts Xanatos at a pretty significant power level. However, I don't know how powerful he is, and so if he has a smaller battery or a smaller aura, it's probably easier for him to hide it. Uh, now, in the Captive Temple... Qui-Gon calls out, I really like this, he calls out the same flaw fighting Xanatos that he did in the Dark Rival. He's like, oh, your footwork's bad, I can predict you again, you're just falling into old habits, you never really became a real Jedi, you never really... And, like, that eggs Xanatos on and is still predictable. 
and it hides the fact that Qui-Gon understands Xanatos' secondary major flaw, which is he always brags and wants to leave some clue in his words to show off his intelligent superiority, which is what allows Qui-Gon to figure out what exactly Xanatos has done to the fusion reactor that would destroy the temple. If he just was like, yep, things are going to blow up, Qui-Gon wouldn't have been able to solve it. But if he, but by saying the things that are most precious to you or dearest to you will destroy you in the end, Qui-Gon is able to remember the theft of the fire crystals, which are very precious and dear to the Jedi Order, and the fact that their uh, energy capacitor, resonator, something-something, science fiction-y, jibber-jabbery, uh, and be like, ah, you've done this, it's not going to show up on any of our computer readouts because it's not a technological thing, it's a physical thing. Uh, thank you for telling me what your plan is. You didn't have to. I really appreciate that. The last note that I want to say is, where the heck was the Jedi Council during the entirety of the Captive Temple book? Like, there's a dark Jedi running around the Jedi Temple, and the entire Jedi Council's like, hmm, Qui-Gon Jinn, Master Tall, who's blind, and two Padawans, who we don't want involved in this, we're going to trust them, think it's fine. Windu and Yoda were just like, today's the day to take vacation. Anyways, if you enjoyed this book, I think Shadow Games has some elements of sabotage and trying to track down uh, somebody who is within the organization who is attacking the protagonist. If I remember correctly, that matches up a little bit with the Captive Temple. There's also some of the Jedi Academy trilogy that deals with dark forces near Jedi trainees. Um, of course... Day of Reckoning is yet another book overthrowing the local government. At this point, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan have restructured four planetary governments in six books. I think they've done Findar, Gala, Melododon, and Telos now. So, pretty much what I've recommended before, I guess? Next time will be Jedi Apprentice, The Fight for Truth, and The Shattered Peace, which are books 9 and 10. I believe previously I mislabeled uh, the Captive Temple and Day of Reckoning as books 5 and 6. They are, in fact, 7 and 8, and this is episode 4 of season 3. You can just pretend that I didn't say that at the beginning, and everything will be fine. Anyways, if you like this episode and want to hear more of my ramblings, please be sure to check that box to like, subscribe, favorite, or whatever it is your app calls it, and check back in next time. You can contact me on Twitter at Jedi underscore Archives, or email me at podcast at badelfgames.com. I'm Jonah, and the archives are incomplete.